Hello, welcome to Glittership episode 73 for June 13th, 2019. This is your host, Keffi, and I'm super excited to be sharing this story with you. Our story for today is Desiree by Megan Arkenberg, read by Danny Daly. Before we get to it, if you've been waiting to pick up your copy of the Tiptree Award honor-listed book, Glittership Year 2, there's a great deal going on for Pride over at Story Bundle. Glittership Year 2 is part of a Pride Month LGBTQ fantasy fiction bundle. Story Bundle is a pay-what-you-want bundle site. For $5 or more, you can get four great books, and for $15 or more, you'll get an additional five books, including Glittership Year 2 and a story game. That comes to as little as $1.50 per book or game. The Story Bundle also offers an option to give 10% of your purchase amount to charity. The charity for this bundle is Rainbow Railroad, a charity that helps queer folks get to a safe place if their country is no longer safe for them. And now, Desiree by Megan Arkenberg, read by Danny Daly. Megan Arkenberg's work has appeared in over 50 magazines and anthologies, including Lightspeed, Asimov's Shimmer, and Ellen Datlow's Best Horror of the Year. She has edited the fantasy e-zine Mirror Dance since 2008 and was recently the nonfiction editor for Queers Destroy Horror, a special issue of Nightmare Magazine. She currently lives in Northern California, where she is pursuing a PhD in English literature. Visit her online at www.meganarkenberg.com. Danny loves to keep busy, and narrating stories is just one of the things she loves to do. She's a former assistant editor of Cast of Wonders, a retired roller derby player, and current soap maker and small business owner. She rants on Twitter at Danuli Danny. That's D A N O O L I underscore D A N I, if that's your thing. Or you can visit the EA forums where she moderates the Cast of Wonders boards. You can find stories narrated by Danny on all four of the Escape Artist podcasts at Starship Sofa and on Audible.com as Danielle Daly. Desolée by Megan Arkenberg. Read by Danny Daly. 1. From Albert Magazine's interview with Egon Rowley, April 2943. Egon Rowley. It was the war that changed him. I remember the day we knew it. We all knew it that morning. He came to our table in the coffee shop with a copy of Raum. Do you remember that newspaper? The reviewers were deaf as blue-eyed cats. The only people in Sudischberg who preferred Anton Fulk's operas to Desley. But Desley? He had a copy of it. This was two days after Ulmerfeld, you understand. None of us had any idea how bad it was. But Raum had gotten its hands on a letter from a soldier, and Desley read it to us, out loud, right there over coffee and pastries. Albert Magazine and what did the letter say? Rowley. The usual things. Blood and, and heads blown clean off. Things like that. Horrible things. I remember. <laughs> I remember Baptist Vogel covered his ears. We all felt it quite badly. A.M. I imagine. Why was this letter so important to Desiree? Rowley. 
Who can say why anything mattered to him? Guilt, most likely. A.M. Guilt? Rowley. Yes. He hadn't volunteered for the army, and that was something of an anomaly in those days. Everyone was so patriotic. So nationalist, I suppose you'd say. But he had his reasons. I mean, I don't suppose Desley could have passed the examinations for enlistment. The psychological examinations. A.M. But it bothered him? That he hadn't volunteered? Rowley. Yes, very much. When he read that soldier's letter, it was the oddest thing. Like he was reading a love letter, you understand. But like I said, there was nothing romantic in it. Nothing at all. It was horrible. A.M. What did Desiree say about it? Rowley. About the letter? Nothing. He just read it and and went back to his rooms, I suppose. That was the last we saw of him. A.M. The last you saw of him? Rowley. Yes. Before Alexander. 2. A letter from Margaret Van Banks to Beatrix Altberg. August, 2892. Dearest B. The scene. Lenore's drawing room, around nine o'clock last night. The moment I stepped through the door, Desiree came running up to me like a child looking for candy. Thank goodness you're here, he said. I should add that it was supposed to be a masquerade, but of course I knew him by his long hair and those dark red lips. And I suppose I'm the only woman in Sudlicksburg to wear four rings in each ear. He certainly knew me immediately. I have a bet running with Isidore, he continued, and Anton and I need you for the violin. He explained, as he half-led, half-dragged me to the music room, that Anton had said something disparaging, typically, about Isidore's skill as a conductor of Desiree's music. Isidore swore to prove him wrong if Desiree would write them a new piece that very moment. Desiree did, a trio for violin, cello, and pianoforte, and having passed the cello to Anton and claimed the piano for himself, he needed me to play violin in the impromptu concert. You're mad, I said on seeing the sheet music. Of course I am, he said, patting me on the shoulder. Isidore thundered into the room. They make such a delightful contrast. Big, blonde Isidore and dark Desiree. Rumor is, Desiree has native blood from the Listereste colonies which makes me wonder quite shallowly if they're all so handsome over there. Yes, B, I imagine you rolling your eyes, but the fact remains that Desiree is ridiculously beautiful. Even Richard admits it. Well, Isidore assembled the audience, and my hands were so sweaty that I had to borrow a pair of gloves from Leonore later in the evening. Desiree was smooth and calm as can be. He kissed me on the forehead and Anton on the cheek to everyone's amusement but Anton's. And then Isidore was rapping the music stand for our attention, and Desiree played the opening notes, and we were off, hurtling like a sled down a hill. I wish I had the slightest clue what we were playing be, but I haven't. The audience loved it, at any rate. That's Desiree for you. Mad as springtime, smooth as ice, 
and clumsy as walking on it. We tease him, saying he's lucky he doesn't wear a dress, he trips over the ladies' skirts so often. But then he apologizes so wonderfully. I've half a mind to trip him on purpose. That clumsiness vanishes when he's playing, though. His fingers on a violin are quick and precise. Either that, or he fits his mistakes into the music so naturally that we don't notice them. You really ought to meet him, B. He has exactly your sense of humor. A few weeks ago, Richard and I were at the symphony, and Desiree joined us in our box, quite unexpectedly. Richard, who was blushing and awkward as it was, tried to talk music with Desiree. This seems to tell a story, doesn't it? he said. It most certainly does, Desiree said. Like Margaret's uncle Cunibert. It starts with something fascinating, then derails itself talking about buttons and waistcoats. If we're lucky, it might work its way back to its original point. Most likely it will put us to sleep until someone rudely disturbs us by applauding. All this was said with the most perfectly straight face, and a bit of an eyebrow raise at me, inviting me to disagree with him. I never do, but it's that invitation that disarms me and keeps the teasing from becoming cruel. Desiree always waits to be proven wrong, though he never is. I should warn you not to fall in love with him, though. I'm sure you laugh, but half of Sudluxburg is ready to serve him its heart on a platter, and I know he'd just smile and never take a taste. He's a man for whom Lenore's masquerades mean nothing, He's so wonderfully full of himself, he has no room to pretend to be anyone else. That's not to say he's cruel. Merely heartless. He's like a ruby. Clear and dark and beautiful to look at, but hard to the core. How such a man can write such music, I'll never know. Yours always, Maggie. Three, from a review of Desiree's Echidna in Der Sentinel, July 2894. For the life of me, I cannot say what this opera is about. Love and courage, a tempestuous battle. I have the libretto somewhere, in a drawer with my gloves and opera glasses, but I will not spoil Desiree's score by putting a story to it. Echidna is music, pure music, so pure it breaks the heart. First come the strings, quietly humming. Andrea Profeta enters the stage. The drums begin, loud, savage. Then the melody, swelling until you feel yourself lifted from the chair, from your body, and you are only a web of sensations. Your heart straining against the music, your blood singing in your fingertips. Just remembering it, I feel my fingers go weak. How the orchestra can bear to play it, I can't imagine. It is not Echidna, but the music that is the hero. We desire, like the heroine, to be worthy of it. We desire to live in such a way that our world may deserve to hold something so pure, so strong, so achingly beautiful within it, 
Four. From the introduction of Desolée, an Ideal, by Richard Stelly, twenty-nine thirty-four. Societies are defined by the men they hate. It is the revenge of an exile that he carries his country to all the world, and to the world, his countrymen are merely a reflection of him. An age is defined not by the men who lived in it, but by the ones who lived ahead of it. Hate smolders, nightmares stay with us, but love fades. Love is fickle. Desolée's tragedy is that he was loved. Five, from Albert Magazine's interview with Egon Rowley. A.M. And what about his vices, Rowley? Desolée's vices. He didn't have any. <laughs> He certainly wasn't vicious. A.M. Vicious. Rowley. That's what the papers called it. He liked to play games, play his friends and admirers against each other. A.M. Like the ladies. Rowley. Yes, that was all a game to him. He'd wear favors. I suppose you'd call them. Like a knight at a joust, he admired Margaret von Banks's earrings at the opening of Echidna, and she gave him one to wear through the performance. After that, the ladies were always fighting to give him earrings. A.M. To your knowledge, was Desley ever in love? Rowley, never. I remember one day, summer of twenty-eight ninety-six, it must have been. A group of us went walking in Brecht's Park. Desolée, Anton Fulk, the newspaperman Richard Steller, the orchestra conductor Isidor Urzler, and myself. It was Sontag afternoon, and all the aristocrats were riding by in their fine clothes and carriages—a sort of weekly parade for us simple peasants. You don't see sights like that any more. Anyway. Desolée was being himself, joking with us and flirting with the aristocrats, or the other way around. It was never easy to tell. Isolde von Bisworm, who was married to a grand duke at the time, slowed her carriage as she passed us and called something unrepeatable down to Desolée. A.M. Unrepeatable. Rowley. Oh. I'm sure it's no more than half the respectable women in Sudlingsburg were thinking. Desolée just laughed and leapt up into her carriage. She whispered something in his ear, and then he kissed her, right there in front of everyone. Her, a married woman, and a grand duchess. A.M. Scandalous. Rowley, it was in those days. We were all. Fulk and Ursler and Stella and I—we were all horrified. But the thing I'm thinking of, when you ask me if he was ever in love with anyone, that happened afterward. When he jumped down from Isolde's carriage, he was smiling like a boy with a lax governess, and he looked so—I suppose you might say beautiful. But in a moment, the look was gone. He caught sight of the man in the next carriage, von Arden, von Allen. Something like that, tall man, 
very dark, not entirely unlike Desolée, although it was very clear which of the two was better favored. A.M. Not von Arden. Rowley. Oh, no. Maggie von Banks used to call Desolée her angel, and he could have passed for one. But von What's-His-Face was very much a man. Desolée didn't seem to notice. He stood there on the path in Brecht's Park, staring like... Well, like one of those girls who flocked to his operas. A.M. Staring at this man? Rowley. Yes, and after kissing Isolde von Bisver, who, let me tell you, was quite the lovely lady in those days. <laughs> Whoever would have suspected Desolée of bad taste? But that was his way, I suppose. A.M. What was his way? Did you ever suspect Desolée of unnatural desires? Rowley. No, never. No desire in him could be unnatural. Six. From the pages of Der Sentinel, May 15, 2897. At dawn on May 14th, the composer Desley was joined by Royal Opera Conductor Isidore Ursler and over 50 representatives of the Sudlichsberg music scene to break ground in Umerfeld, two miles south of the city, for Desiree's ambitious new opera house. The plans for Galatea, which Desiree cheerfully warns the public are liable to change, show a stage the size of a racetrack, half a mile of lighting catwalks, and no less than four labyrinthine sub-basements for prop and scenery storage. For a first foray into architecture, Desiree's design shows several highly ambitious features, including three-story lobby and central rotunda. The rehearsal rooms will face onto a garden, Desiree says, featuring a miniature forest and a wading pool teeming with fish. When asked why this is necessary, he replied with characteristic charm. It isn't. Art isn't about what is necessary. Art decides what is necessary. 7. From a review of Desley's Brunhilde in Der Sentinel, February 2899. For once, the most talked about thing at the opera was not Desley's choice of jewel, but his choice of setting. Sudlichsberg's public has loved Galatea from the moment we saw her emerging from the green marble in Umerfeld, and at last, she has come alive and repaid our devotion with an embrace. At last, said more than one opera-goer at last night's premiere of Brunhilde, Desiree's music has a setting worthy of it. Of course, Galatea is not Desiree's gift to Sudlichsberg, but a gift to himself. The plush and velvet comfort of the auditorium is designed first and foremost to echo the swells of his music, and the marble statues in the lobby are not pandering to their aristocratic models, but suggestions to the audience of what it is about to witness. Beauty. Dignity. Power. However we grovel at the feet of Desolée the composer, we must also bow to Desolée the consummate showman. 
as to the jewel in this magnificent setting, let us not pretend that anyone will be content with the word of Richard Stelle, opera-goer. Everyone in Sydlicksburg will see Brunhild, and all will love it. The only question is if they will love it as much as Desley clearly loves his Galatea. Finally, as a courtesy to the ladies and interested gentlemen, Desley's choice of jewel for last night's performance came from the lovely Beatrix Altberg. He wore her pearl and garnet string around his left wrist, and it could be seen sparkling in the house lights as he stood at the end of each act and applauded wildly. 8. From Albert Magazine's Interview with Egon Rowley A.M. They say that Desiree's real decline began with Galatea. Rowley. Whoever they are. 2899 it was finished. I remember, because that was the year van der Frust opened her office in Sudlicksburg. She was an odd one, Dr. Frust. But brilliant, I'll give her that. A.M. Desiree made an appointment with Dr. Frust that June. Rowley. Yes. And I don't know what they talked about, though. Desiree never said. A.M. But you can guess, yes? Rowley. Knowing Dr. Frust, I can guess. A.M. As a courtesy to our readers who haven't read von der Frust's work, could you please explain? Rowley. She was fascinated by origins. Of course, she didn't mean that the same way everyone else does. Didn't give half a pence for your parents, did von der Frust. She had a bit of... a bit of a fixation with how you were educated, how you formed your ideals, your passions your values, what books you read, whose music you played, that sort of thing. A.M. And how do you suppose Desiree formed his ideals? Rowley. I don't know. As I said, whatever Desiree discussed with Dr. Frust, he never told me. And he never went back to her. 9. From Chapter 8 of Desolée in Ideal by Richard Stelle Whether or not Desiree suffered from psychological breakdown during the building of Galatea is largely a matter of conjecture. He failed to produce any significant piece of music in 2897 or the year after. Brunhild, which premiered at the grand opening of Galatea in 2899, is generally acknowledged to be one of his weakest works. But any concrete evidence of psychological disturbance is nearly impossible to find. We know he met with famed Dr. van der Frust in June 2899, but we have no records of what he said there. The details of an encounter with the law in February 2900 are equally sketchy. Elise Koch Dr. Frust's Maid in 2899 offers an odd story about the aftermath of Desiree's appointment. She claims to have found a strange garment in Dr. Frust's office, a small and shapeless 
black dress, of the sort women prisoners wear in Listera and its colonies. Unfortunately for the curious, Dr. Frust demanded that the thing be burned in her fireplace, and its significance to Desley is still not understood. 10. From the report of Hans Frey, prostitute, February 12, 2900. Mr. Frey, 19 years old, claims a man matching the description of the composer Desolet approached him near Rosenplatz late at night last Donnerstag. The man asked the price, which Mr. Frey gave him, and then offered twice that amount if Mr. Frey would accompany him to rooms somewhere in the south of Sudlitzburg. Once in the rooms, Mr. Frey says the man sat beside him by the window and proceeded to cry into his shoulder. He didn't hurt me none, Mr. Frey says. Didn't touch me. As a matter of fact, I felt sorry for him. He seemed like such a mess. No charges are being considered, as the man cannot properly be said to have contracted a prostitute for immoral purposes. The composer Desley's housekeeper and staff could not be found to comment on the incident. One neighbor, a Miss Benjamin, whose nerves make her particularly susceptible to any irregularity, claims that on the night of last Donnerstag, her sleep was disturbed by a lamp kept burning in her neighbor's foyer. Such a lamp, she states, is usually maintained by Desley's staff until the small hours and extinguished upon his homecoming. She assumes that the persistence of this light on Donnerstag indicates that Desley did not return home on the night in question. 11. From a review of Desley's Hieronymus in Der Sentinel, December 2902. Any man who claims to have sat through Desley's Hieronymus with a dry eye and handkerchief is either deaf or a damned liar. Personally, I hope he is the damned liar, as it would be infinitely more tragic if he missed Desolet's deep and tangled melodies. Be warned, Hieronymus bleeds, and the blood will be very hard to wash out of our consciousness. 12. A letter from Margaret von Banks-Stelle to Beatrix Altberg, March 2903. Dearest B, Richard says war is inevitable. His job with the newspapers lets him know these things, I suppose. He says Casper in the foreign relations room is trying to map Listerestra alliances with string and cards on the walls. And now he's completely run out of walls. That doesn't begin to include the colonies. The way Richard talks about it, it sounds like a ball game, B. He jokes about placing bets on who will invade whom, as if it doesn't matter any more than a day at the races. I know he doesn't need to worry. That at worst, the papers will send him out with a notepad and a pencil and set him scribbling. The Stella name still has some pull after all, if he wants to make use of it. I don't, Beatrix. If war breaks out with Lister, I want you to know that I am going to enlist. 
Yours, Margaret Stella. 13. From Chapter 11 of Desolée, an Ideal, by Richard Stella. It was inevitable that the war should, to some extent, be Desolée's. It was the natural result of men like him, in a world he had helped create. Dr. van der Frust would say it was the result of our ideals, and that Desiree had wrought those ideals for us. I think Desiree would agree. We, all of us, the artists and the critics with the aristocrats and cavalrymen, might meet in a coffee shop for breakfast one morning and lay some plans for dinner. The cavalrymen would ride off, perhaps as little as ten miles from Sundlichsburg, where the least arrest troops were gathered. There would be a skirmish, and more often than not, an empty place at the supper table. Desiree took to marking these places with a spring of Curtison's lace. That, too, was part of his ideal. In this war, in our war, there was a strange sense of decorum. This was more than a battle of armies for us, the artists. Hadn't Lisa Restrit audiences applauded and wept at our music as much as our own countrymen? The woman whose earring Desiree had worn one night at the opera might be the same one who set fire to his beloved Galatea. The man who wrung Anton Folk's hand so piteously at the Lisa opening of Viridian might be the same man who severed that hand with a claw of shrapnel. How could we fight these men and women whose adulating letters were kept pressed in our desk drawers? How could we kill them who died singing our songs? 14. From Albert Magazine's interview with Egon Rowley. A.M. Do you think Alexander was written as a response to the war? Rowley. I know it was. Well, not to the war alone. A fair number of things emerged because of that. Fulke's last symphony, which he wrote one-handed, and Richard Stelly's beautiful book of poems. Who knew the man had poetry in him, that old newspaper cynic? A.M. His wife died in the war, didn't she? Rowley. Yes, poor Maggie. It seems strange to pity her. She wouldn't have wanted my pity. But, well, I'm an old man now. It's my prerogative to pity the young and dead. A.M. But to return to Desiree. Rowley. Yes, to Desiree and Alexander. You must have seen it. All the world saw it when it premiered in 2908. Even babes in arms. How old are you? A.M. The interviewer gives her age. Rowley. Well then, you must have seen it. It was brilliant, wasn't it? Terrible and brilliant. Terrible, terrible and brilliant. 15. 
A letter from infantryman Leo Kirsch, printed in Raum, September 2907. Gentlemen, I cannot make you understand what is happening here, less than a day's ride from your parks and offices and coffee houses. I can list, as others have, the small and innumerable tragedies. A headless soldier we had to walk on to cross through the trenches, a dead nurse, frozen with her arms around a dead soldier, sheltering him from bullets. I can list these things, but I cannot make you understand them. If it were tears I wanted from you, gentlemen of Sudlicksburg, I could get them easily enough. You artists, you would cry to see the flowers trampled on our marches, the butterflies withering from poisonous air. You would cry to watch your opera houses burn like scraps of kindling. Me? I was happy to see Galatea burn. Happy to know it would hurt you, if only for a day. But I don't want your weeping. If I want anything from you, it is for you to come down here to the battlefields, to see what your pride, your stupidity, your brainless worship of brainless courage has created. It is your poetry that told that nurse to shelter her soldier with her body, knowing it was useless, knowing she would die. Your music told her courage would make it beautiful. I want you to look down at the headless soldiers in the trenches and see how beautiful dumb courage really is. The Listerestra have brought native soldiers from the colonies, dark men and women, with large eyes and deep, harrowing voices. They wear Listerestra uniforms and speak the language, but they have no love for that country, no joy in dying for it. Yesterday I saw a woman walking through the battlefield, holding the hands of soldiers. Her people, our people, and Listerestra alike, and singing to them as they died. That courage, the courage of the living in the face of death, could never come from your art. For us, and for Lister, courage of that kind is lost. I tried to join her today, but I did not know what to sing when all our music is lies. 16. From a review of Desiree's Alexander in Der Sentinel, August 2908. Richard Stella has refused the task of reviewing Alexander for Der Sentinel, and it is easy to see why. Stella is a friend of Desiree, and it takes a great deal of courage. Courage, which Desiree brutally mocks and slanders, to take a stand against one's friends. But sometimes it must be done. In this instance, standing with Desiree is not only cowardly, it is a betrayal of what all thinking, feeling men in this country hold dear. Nine years ago, after the premiere of Brunhild, Stella famously refused to summarize its plot, saying we would all see it and love it regardless of what he said. Well, you will all see Alexander, 
regardless of what I say. And you, my friends, will be horrified by the change in your idol. 17. From Chapter 12 of Desolate in Ideal by Richard Stelle. The war changed Desolate. Alexander changed us all. It seems to be a piece of anti-Lister propaganda at first. Alexander, a Listerestra commander, prepares for war against the native people of the Listerestra colonies. Shikoba, a native woman, rallies her people against him. The armies meet, but instead of the swelling music, the dignity and heroism Desolée's audience have come to expect, there is slaughter. The Listerestra fling themselves at the enemy and fall in hideous, cacophonous multitudes. At the end of the opera, Alexander is the last Listerestra standing. He goes to kill Shikoba. She stabs him brutally in the chest and he collapses, gasping. Shikoba kneels beside him and sings a quiet, subdued finale as he dies. This is an opera about courage, about heroism. Its hearers turn to all the other operas that have ever been written and call them lies. When audiences leave the opera house, they do so in silence. I have heard of few people seeing it twice. At some point during the writing of Alexander, in October 2907, I believe, Desley announced at a dinner of some sort that he had native blood and had been born in the least arrest for colonies. This did not matter much to the gathered assembly, and besides, it was something of an open secret. We took it, at the time, to be a sort of explanation, an excuse for the powerful hatred that boiled in him each time we mentioned the war. Not that we needed any explanations. My wife, Margaret von Bankstelle, had died at Elmerberg about a month before. Now, of course I wonder, why did it matter to Desolée that the world he shaped so heavily was not his by blood? What exactly had the war made him realize? About himself and about the rest of us? It is significant, I think, that, in Galatea's burning, all the Listerestra army costumes were lost. Fine, Desiree had said. Borrow the uniforms of our countrymen. They all look the same from where we'll be standing. 18. From Albert Magazine's interview with Egon Rowley. A.M. The war marked the end of an era. Rowley. The death of an era, yes. Of Desolée's era. I suppose you could say Desolée killed it. 19. From the obituaries page of Realm, June 2911. The editors of Realm are saddened to report the death of the composer, architect, and respected gentleman, Desolée. We realize his popularity has waned in recent years, following a number of small scandals 
and a disappointing opera. Nevertheless, we must acknowledge our debts to the earlier work of this great and fascinating man, whose music taught our age so much about pride, patriotism, and courage. Something of an enigma in life, Desley seems determined to remain so hereafter. He directed his close friend Egon Rowley and famed Dr. van der Frust to burn all his papers and personal effects. He also expressed a desire to be cremated and to have his ashes spread over Ulmerfeld, site of both his destroyed Galatea and one of the bloodiest battles in the recent war. No family is known, nor are Mr. Rowley and Dr. Frust releasing the cause of death. Desolet is leaving Sudlicksburg, it seems, as mysteriously as he came to it. 20. From a report on native boarding schools in the Listerester colonies, May 2937. Following almost 20 years of intense scrutiny and criticism from the outside world, Native boarding schools throughout the territories of the one-time Listerestra Empire are being terminated and their records released to the public. Opened in the late 2870s, Native boarding schools professed to provide Native-born children with the skills and understandings necessary to function in the colonial society. In the early years, the children learned the Listerestra language and farming techniques. Over time, some of the schools added courses in machine operation. Criticism centers on both the whole-scale repression of the students' culture and the absence of lessons in science or the fine arts. We went around in shapeless black dresses, like criminals in a prison. Zephyrine Adam, born Kalfaniah, says of her time in the Bonner Institute. They say they taught us to speak their language, but they really taught us to be silent. They had rooms full of books, music sheets, and phonographs, but we weren't allowed to use them. Not unless we were too clumsy to be trusted by the factory machines. They understood, as we do, that stories and music give us power. They were afraid of what we would do to them if they let us into their world. In the face of such accusations, the majority of native boarding school instructors seem reluctant to speak, though some will still defend the schools and their intentions. The goal was to construct a Listerestra ideal for them, but not to hide their natural-born talents says Madame Achille, from the Coralie Institute in what is now northern Arcadie. We simply made sure they expressed them in the appropriate ways. I remember one girl, one of the first we processed back in 2879, an unhappy little thing most of the time, but a budding musician. She would run through the halls chanting and playing a wooden drum. Well, we set her down one day at the pianoforte, and she took to it like a fish to water. The things she played, so loud, 
so dignified. She had such talent, though I don't suppose anything ever came of it. A lot of them had such talent, she adds. I wonder whatever became of them. Desiree was originally published in Cross Genres and is copyright Megan Arkenberg, 2013. This recording is a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license, which means you can share it with anyone you'd like, but please don't change or sell it. Our theme is Aurora Borealis by Bird Creek, available through the Google Audio Library. You can support Glittership by subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash keffy, subscribing to our feed, leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts, or by buying your own copy of the Autumn 2018 issue at www.glittership.com slash buy. You can also support us by picking up a free audiobook at www.audibletrial.com slash glittership. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with Best for Baby by Rivka Raphael.